Jonah chapter 1, we are going to continue in our series, and this morning I want to just talk to the subject of how God raises us to life. I think it's very fitting uh, that we're here in this text and going to see Jonah's life transformed uh, when we have just witnessed baptism. And what baptism is, is it's a symbol. It's when a new believer who has come into relationship with Jesus understood their sinfulness, understood the separateness that sin creates between the individual and the God who created the individual and has now come to saving faith. Baptism symbolizes that. It symbolizes this resurrection life that we enjoy as followers of Jesus. And I want us to look at that this morning. But before we do, I want to just kind of share a story with you to get our minds moving and our heart open to what God would have us to hear today. Uh, Several years ago, many years ago for that matter, there was a gentleman uh, driving down the road. He was driving an old Ford and uh, suddenly that old Ford that he was chugging along in uh, came to a, a stop, came to a very... Uh, abrupt stop. The engine began to clatter and make a lot of noise, and he was soon on the side of the road and underneath the hood. He wasn't much of a mechanic, and so he got underneath that hood and did all that he could. He began to tap here and there and uh, and kind of mess around with some of the different parts that were underneath the hood, jiggling wires, and, and just hoping something that he touched would make it run again. He was being a mechanic like I would be if that happened to me. As he's under the hood and jiggling wires and tapping on stuff, he heard a car coming. And as that car got close enough, he saw that it wasn't an old Ford like he was driving. It's a brand new Lincoln, top of the line, beautiful car. And uh, thankfully, that, uh, that driver of the new Lincoln is a good Samaritan. He pulled over, he got out and asked what was going on. And so the man who, would, who was underneath the hood said, you know, I don't know what's going on. I've been tapping on stuff, but it just came to a stop. I don't know how to get this old Ford moving again. So the guy said, you got a screwdriver, and took a screwdriver from the driver, got underneath the hood, began to fiddle with some things, and all of a sudden gets in, and it starts right up. And he says, man, that's awesome. I I don't know how you did that. It's incredible. Thank you so much. Uh, Are you a mechanic? What's your name? Began to sort of inquire about who this was. And so the guy who had fixed his car says, well, uh, I'm Henry Ford, and I ought to know a thing or two about this Ford we made. That's the kind of guy I would want when I'm stranded on the side of the road. Billy Graham shared this story in his book, World Aflame. When you think about Billy Graham and his ministry as an evangelist, he met thousands upon thousands of people whose lives, just like that old Ford, came to a very abrupt stop just kind of fizzled out, kind of got stranded on the side of the road. And many times what brought the halt to that person's life or to those people's lives was something unexpected. It's something outside their control. It's the death of a loved one. It's that dreaded report that you've got a disease, you've got cancer. Maybe it's the sudden loss of a job and the financial strain that comes with that. And so the sudden impact of something outside of the person's control has brought their life to an abrupt halt. Other times, the chugged stop is of one's own doing. It's the result of poor life choices. It's the result of lies that have caught up with them. It's the result of secrets and deception that have been uncovered and revealed. And so all of a sudden, you find yourself outed. Life is coming to an end. Whatever the situation, in seasons like this, when it feels like you're sinking deeper and deeper and deeper, it's good to remember That the God who made the dry land and the sea is the God who's able to reach down to where you are and pull you up. 
I think as we look at the life of Jonah here, we see that Jonah's in a very similar situation. You see, the prophet is in rebellion against God. As we've walked through the first 16 verses of this book, we've seen that Jonah, who's the prophet of God, has heard from God, has been called of God to go to Nineveh and preach to the Assyrians, his hated enemies, the enemies of his people. And Jonah, rather than getting up and going and following the call of God in his life, he got up and went in the opposite direction. The Bible tells us he went down to Joppa. And there in Joppa, he found a ship. He chartered it. He went down into the ship. They set sail. They begin to move across the Mediterranean. And Jonah is found down in the ship asleep. As the sailors are battling the storm that God has hurled upon them to get the attention of his prophet and to get him back in the position he's supposed to be in, the sailors understand that the ship is literally ripping apart and Jonah is asleep below deck. The captain awakens this prophet. He knows exactly what's going on. He's not surprised that the storm is is raging outside. He knows that it's by the hand of God. He knows it's the result of his own choices. He knows that he's the issue. And if he will get his life right, or better yet in his perspective, if his life will end, then the storm will quiet down. And so he suggests to the sailors, I'm the culprit. I'm the person it's after. If you'll throw me into the ocean, the sea will quiet down. Well, like we looked at last week, the sailors don't like that option. They're a little bit more compassionate than Jonah is because rather than going to uh, great extents to, to, to walk away from the call of God and walk away from compassion and mercy being given to the enemy, these sailors who probably would have had no real concern for Jonah are compassionate enough to say, you know what, we're going to try a different way. They begin to row harder, leaning in more to get to the shore, and yet the storm becomes even that more powerful and works against them. So they finally give in, and they throw them overboard. And immediately the Bible tells us the sea ceased its raging. Today as we pick up this story, what we're finding here is Jonah in the ocean, and he's sinking into the deep. Thus far, he has refused to pray. He, he's refused to even repent of sin. He's refused to even think about the decisions that he's made. His rebellion has hurled him into the sea. And as he sinks into its depths, his eyes are finally open to the storms he has created in his own life. And so he calls out to the Lord. He prays and he begins to own his own sin in life. And it's in that moment that we see that God reaches down and raises him up to life from the pit of death. Look with me. Let's begin reading Jonah chapter 1, the last verse of that chapter, and we're going to read through the end of chapter 2. So 117 through chapter 2, verse 10. The Bible says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple." The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars are closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. 
When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the Bible says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. For some reason, when a lot of people, many people for that matter, come to the story of Jonah and they think about what it says in regards to Jonah being swallowed by a fish and vomited up on dry land those three days after being swallowed, they are troubled with that. In fact, many times people are so troubled with this story and the seemingly incomprehensible aspect of it that a fish would swallow a human and that human survive in the midst of that fish's belly for all of that time. They just can't fathom that happening because it's realistically impossible. I've fished for many years and I've caught a lot of fish and I've uh, seen what they eat and I've seen how quickly those things that they eat die in their bellies. And so it does make no sense whatsoever that a human being could be swallowed and a human being could survive. And yet that's what the word of God tells us right here. And so the people who disbelieve this will dismiss the whole book because in this scientific age, they just cannot accept the idea that this could happen. I just want to submit a question. Could it be that we've become so smart That we're no longer uh, smart enough to believe simple things, smart enough to be able to have faith and trust the Lord's word. Personally, I have no problem with this great fish swallowing Jonah because there's a lot of big things in the ocean, right? I don't usually catch things that big, but if you go out there and and if you were to swim around and and just be able to see what's under the sea and all the things that are there, it, it makes, it's easy for me to believe that a fish could swallow a human. It could be a whale. It could be a large shark. It could be a giant grouper for all of that matter. We don't know what's under the ocean that God used. It could have been something that is so deep that we've never even discovered that fish. And God in his sovereignty and in his wisdom appointed that fish to come up from the depths of the sea for just a moment like that. We don't know. See, the point of Jonah's story is not the fish, but we want to major on the fish in the story and, and, and how it's, it makes no scientific sense for, the, for it to happen. But if I was to read in this story that the Lord appointed a shrimp and it swallowed Jonah, I don't know about you, but I would believe the word of God. Jumbo shrimp, right? So what we eat. That's not the point of the story, though. You see, Jonah is swallowed and Jonah survives for these three days in the fish because God miraculously appointed it for it to happen and he did so for a reason. So the issue at hand from the Bible's perspective is not whether or not the fish could swallow Jonah. The issue is about what was taking place inside the fish during those three days. It was about moving his prophet from where he was in rebellion to where he needed to be in repentance and faith. So the story is bookended by this fish's activity. I I like the idea that when he's swallowed, he's moved back to where he needs to be and he's vomited up. God was sending the fish. It was like a submarine on God's payroll to take him from where he was to where he needed to be. And all the while, God's spirit is moving in the heart of the prophet to bring him to a place of brokenness and faith and repentance. So he swallows and vomits the prophet up on dry land. 
Between all of these activities, between these two actions, we read of Jonah's confession, we read of his repentance, and God's restoration in his life as God reaches to the depths and brings him back to the living. Jonah records this for us. He describes it to us in poetic language, and this description is given to us in stages. For instance, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, Jonah is praying for the first time in the story. But where's this prayer coming from? It's coming from the belly of the fish. Jonah's not praying from the ship. He's not praying from the land before he got on the ship. He's never prayed up to this point. He's never repented up to this point. But now in the belly of the fish, as his, consequ- as his actions have brought consequences and flooded his life, he's now praying. But it didn't happen immediately. After being cast into the sea at his request, what happens when you get thrown into the sea? You begin to sink, and that's what happens to Jonah. And so he describes it here as the waves were coming over him, the waves were passing over his body. He's sinking down deeper and deeper. He knows he's about to die. I can't imagine a worse way to die than drowning. To just feel that your life is slipping away, feeling that, that, that you know what's happening, you can feel it taking over in your body, and yet that's what happens to Jonah as he sinks to the depths of the sea. It's in this moment of despair that Jonah acknowledges his, his predicament. It's in this moment of despair that he begins to call out to God, God, help me, God, come to me. Warren Wearsby, I saw this week as I was studying what he has to say about this text, he correctly points out that Jonah's prayer was born out of affliction rather than affection. Jonah's not here saying, God, I love you so much. God, would you help me in this situation? No, Jonah's saying, God, I'm about to die. I need you to step in. It's out of discipline. It's out of danger rather than delight in the Lord. And yet, this was a good place to be calling out. You see, it doesn't matter what brings you to a place of confession and repentance. It's just that you've been to that place. Sometimes it is a heart that's so in tune with the Lord. And, and when we step outside of, of where we ought to be and we begin to transgress what God has told us that is right and good for our lives, when we step out of that, our heart is moved and we say, God, I've sinned against you and you only. God, forgive me, bring me back. That's delight. Sometimes the web that we've spun in our lives brings us to a place where we are experiencing the consequences of our decisions and it's in that affliction that we begin to call out to the lord regardless of where we are and what got us there let us call on the lord so despair opened the prophet's eyes and opened his ears The numbness that we've talked about as we've walked through this story thus far that characterized his life is now beginning to dissipate. He's once again becoming sensitive to the Lord's movement, sensitive to the Lord's action in his heart. And so in his despair, Jonah recognized the ways and the depth of the sea as God's judgment over his sin. That's what he's saying in verse 3. He's saying, God, it's not the sailors that put me here. It's not the waves that are doing this. It's you judging my sin. And I recognize where I'm at. And I recognize that I am the cause for being there. And it's your goodness that's helping helping me to see this. Jonah never asked why these things were happening. I think many times we recognize that the consequences we're facing is of our own doing. Unfortunately, 
in those moments, we think that we're so far gone that we're hopeless. We think that we're so far gone that no one could reach down and love us enough to take us out. What I want you to see out of this text this morning is that it doesn't matter where you are at in your life. It doesn't matter how far you feel like you are away from the Lord. God will and wants to reach down and change your life. His grace is amazing. That's what we sing about. Why do we sing about it being so amazing? It's because it can take an old wretch, and that's all of us, regardless of what's happening in our lives, and he will reach down and lovingly bring us out if we will just simply say, Lord God, help me in this situation. We will call upon him. He will reach down. That's what's happening in Jonah's life. He remembered God's word. Think about this. Here's the prophet of God who up to this point has been running in rebellion. He's not been praying. He's definitely not been confessing sin. He's definitely not been listening to the word of God. And yet in his moment of despair, even in his affliction, he remembers the Lord. That's what the Bible says. And in remembering the Lord, he's remembering the Lord's word. How do we know that? Because this, the, the words that are given us here in poetic language are, are words that are, are, that are very similar to many of the Psalms that we read. And you would think that the prophet who knows the word of God, who speaks thus saith the Lord, would know what the Lord's word says. And so as he cries out to the Lord, he's remembering the Lord's word and he's responding back to God. God is moving him, bringing him to a place of brokenness, faith, and repentance. And so he called out to the Lord, his God, the Bible says, knowing he could raise him up and save his life. Jonah prayed to the one true God, his God. It's very different than who the sailors were praying to. Chapter one, who are they praying to? They're praying to their gods. In fact, the captain comes down and says, sleeper, get up. What are you doing? Rise up and call upon your God. Perhaps it's your God who will answer they thought every god is basically the same. They're these little geographic deities, little g-gods that, that would move if you did certain things. But Jonah understands that his god is the god of all gods. In fact, there are no other gods except for the god of Israel. And he calls upon him. He calls upon the one who made the sea and made the dry land. He prayed to the god of salvation. That's what he declared in verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord, belongs to Yahweh. Unfortunately, Jonah's experience is all too often an experience of many Christians. You see, for whatever reason, they get their eyes off of the Lord. They choose to do their own thing. You ever been there? Sure you have. If you say you've never been there in your Christian walk, that means you just got saved or you're lying, right? Which if you're lying, imitation's coming, response time is coming. You need to repent of that. We've all been there. We've all walked at a guilty distance. Now, sometimes the guilty distance is a long ways. It's more than other people. But we've all walked at a guilty distance as a follower of Jesus. And it's in those moments that you know that God loves you no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've walked away, no matter how far you feel from the Lord, you are one prayer from God. You see, God wants us to see today in this chapter that he specializes in the impossible and in the improbable. It would seem that Jonah's situation is beyond hope. It's beyond help. It's beyond God. It, it, we would look at this and say, why would God help this prophet? He's obviously wanting nothing to do with God. He's obviously wanting nothing to do with the call upon his life. Let him die. Let God wash his hands from him and be done. And yet God steps down, reaches down, and does the impossible and the improbable in his life. 
God's mercy can and God's mercy will reach down to the very depths of despair and he will raise up those who will repent of sin. This morning, you may feel like you're a million miles away from the Lord. You may feel like you're dead to the things of God. And yet, as I just said, you are one prayer away. He always desires to step in and rescue. He wants to raise you to life again. The text is dealing with the prophet. He's dealing, God's word is dealing with a believer. And so by and large, my references this morning, as we move through these three truths, are geared toward those who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but are walking into guilty distance. Hey, the message is come home. The message is turn from sin. The message is turn back to the Lord. The message is allow him to straighten out your life. You're not beyond hope. You're not beyond the despair that you feel. But it's also a message for those who have never come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I want us to keep in mind the sailors who are part of this story. Last week in chapter 1, as we finished up there in the last few verses, we see the sailors vowing to the Lord. We see the sailors making offerings to the Lord and, and worshiping the Lord, turning to Him. I believe they're saved. I believe they come to a saving knowledge of the God of Israel. And today, the message is for all of us, whether we're in Christ or not in Christ, to look to Him. So with that said, let me give you three truths and the message is two pages shorter than normal, we'll be out before 10.30 easily. <laughs> Three truths. Now, here's the first one I want you to see. God desires to restore life to sinners. Simple truth. It's what we've seen already. As I've set this up, I hope you've already recognized that God desires to restore life to sinners. Here's what I believe Satan tells us. One of the biggest lies the enemy whispers, if not yells into our ears, is this. It's too late. It's too late. You're beyond hope. God couldn't forgive you. God couldn't love you. The, the people that you have around you in your life, if they knew what's going on in your heart, if they knew the things that you've done, they would write you off. It's too late. Have you ever heard those lies? Have you ever heard those things whispered in your ear, maybe screamed at you from the enemy? You see, he wants you to believe that God's grace is limited. He wants you to believe that God's mercy is short. But the Bible tells us over and over again that our God is long-suffering, that our God is patient, that our God is kind and good and forgiving, that he's merciful, that he's gracious. That is who our God is. But the enemy tells you it's too late. He wants you to think that your sin is outside the purview of Christ's forgiveness. Think about that. Outside the purview, outside the scope of the forgiveness of Christ. Here's what the Bible tells us. That God has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? Infinite. It's going in both directions. Let's go back to geometry class for, for a moment. If you were good at geometry, you know what I'm talking about. Infinite. That's how far your sin has been removed. And it goes on to say this, that God remembers it no more. Now, how can a God who knows all things forget something? It's not so much that he's telling us that God has forgotten it. He literally can't remember it. What he's telling us is this. It's not holding it over your head. You were condemned in your sin, condemned to death. It's what you rightly deserved as a sinner. And God held that over your head because sin deserves that. But now in Christ, you've been forgiven and it is no longer held over your sin. Held over, your sin's no longer held over your head. You've been forgiven. But the enemy doesn't want you to believe that. 
And so we succumb to the consequences of our actions at times because we give in to what the Lord or what the enemy is telling us about our Lord. We give in to the lifestyle that we've created because we feel like there's no hope. Why do we believe such lies? Why do we allow the enemy to paint those, our God, in such an unloving and unkind and limited way? We need to remember what the Bible says. Here's what the prophet, the, uh, I shouldn't say prophet, I guess he's more of an apostle, but here's what John says about our God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 16, he says these two things. God is love. Look at that verse on the screen. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 16, he says the same thing. He says, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Our God is a God of love. I love verse John, first John 4, 10. He goes on to say this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and has sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We talked about that technical term last week. That's Jesus paying the penalty for us, appeasing the wrath of God. So where the sin that we have demands the holy wrath of God against it, Jesus steps in and says, I'll pay that penalty. I'll appease the wrath of the father. Why does he do that? Because he loves you. Because you're worthy of that. Not in who you are, but in who he is in you, in the image that is in your life. He loves you and values you. John 3, 16, the verse that we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so that, that theme of love we see all throughout the Bible. He is a God of love and he desires to restore sinners. We see pictures of this all throughout the Bible. John chapter 13. Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. He's been moving toward Jerusalem. He gets to the point where that's just a number of days away. And Jesus is sitting there with his disciples and they're having a discussion. And, and John says, or I should say Peter says to Jesus that John records and he says, If all fall away, I will not. I will die for you. I will lay my life down for you. And, and Jesus looks at Peter, probably with gracious eyes and loving eyes, and says, Oh, Peter, 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 before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter's probably offended by that. No, I'm not going to deny you. I would never deny you. I would never do that. I will, I will give my life. I will lay it down for you, Jesus. Later on, Jesus is arrested disciples scatter. Peter kind of follows along at a distance. He's hiding. He's, he's trying to cloak himself. He doesn't want anyone to recognize him and, and equate him with Jesus. And so three different times out there in that courtyard, he's asked if he's a follower of Jesus. And three times, the one who says, I will never deny you. I will give my life. Says, I don't even know the guy. Expletive, expletive, expletive. Third time he denies the rooster crows. Peter remembers what Jesus said. The Bible tells us, I believe in the Gospel of Matthew, that he locks eyes with Jesus. And can you imagine, not just the feeling that Peter had in the moment, the Bible tells us Peter ran out in shame, crying in shame. But think about what's going through the heart of Jesus. Here's the Son of God about to bear the sins of the world, and the one disciple who said, I will never forsake you, forsakes him, and just doesn't forsake him, does it with force. It's a little girl using expletives. Can you imagine the heartbreak that Jesus would have felt? Sure, he knew this was going to happen. He said it was going to happen. But the humanity of Jesus would have felt the weight of that. 
And if somebody's let you down like that in your life, it's hard to embrace them once again. Fast forward in the Gospel of John, we come to the post-resurrection. Jesus has been resurrected. He's introduced or revealed himself to his disciples on a number of occasions. And on one particular situation, Jesus and Peter have an interchange. And Jesus asked Peter three different times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? What's the purpose in all of that? Jesus is graciously restoring his disciple, soon to be the apostle. Why would he do that? Because Jesus is reaching down to the depths of despair and all of the things that web of, of issues that Peter has created in his life and says, Peter, this is not where you need to be. Come up here. You're my disciple. You're, you're the one that's going to preach in just a matter of days. When the Holy Spirit comes, Peter, it's going to be you that does that. Why would Jesus do that? You and I wouldn't do that. We'd wipe our hands for that dude. He's not faithful. He's not trustworthy. I can't, I can't follow a guy like that. If he can't stay by the stuff, I'm out. But Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. God delights and rejoices in restoring people. So today, it doesn't matter how far you've walked away from the Lord. Man, it doesn't matter how much you've messed up in your life. It doesn't matter how terrible you feel about yourself. It doesn't matter the amount of shame that you carry on your shoulders. Jesus loves you. I want you to see that this morning. Jesus desires to restore your life. This was true of Peter. It's been true of countless people. And it was true of Jonah. Jonah could have been killed in the ocean, right? In the Mediterranean, as the sailors threw him over, he could have sunk to the depths and died there. The fish that swallowed him couldn't have been, didn't have to be just a, 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 a submarine to take him back to dry land. It could have been the next meal for the big fish. And yet God in his grace preserved Jonah through all that. Why? God delights in doing those things. Here's the second truth I want you to see. Life begins when the sinner acknowledges God's lordship and owns his or her sin. Death was in the future for this prophet. We see here in verse 2 that he was in the belly of Sheol. He was in the place of death when he calls out. That's what he's expressing as he, as he reverberates this back to the Lord. See, up to this point in the story, Jonah recognized God's authority and power. He described it to the sailors. He says, I serve the Lord, the God who made the dry land and the sea. That's what he says. He knows all of that. Mentally, he knew this to be true. But in his heart, Jonah, Jonah wanted to be his own Lord. Anybody uh, connect with that? Any one of us want to be our own God at times? We want to call our own shots. We want to do our own thing. Of course we do. If you're not shaking your head, no, you're asleep or you're lying again. Response time's coming. We all struggle with that. He also wanted to rationalize his decisions. I mean, think about this. Jonah had a pretty good excuse, humanly speaking, for fleeing. God, you want me to do what? You want me to go to preach to who? Do you, do you not know who those wicked, cruel people are? Do you not know what they've done? Think about the guy that God called to go and to pray over Saul before he became Paul. Lord, do you want me to go and do what? Am I hearing you correctly? Do you know what he's done to your people? Do you know what he's done to my brothers and sisters in the Lord? You want me to go and pray over this guy? And yet, Ananias went and did it. 
Jonah caught the next ship out of town and headed west. He's rationalizing. Due to his choices, the life of God that Jonah once enjoyed quickly faded into obscurity. You see, he was so far from God and so lifeless in God that when he got on the ship and the things were falling apart, they didn't even recognize him as a God follower, much less a prophet. I mean, if the sailors would have known, here's the prophet of God who spoke on behalf of Israel and turned the tide for them under Jeroboam II, if they knew this was the guy, they would have been saying, hey, get up and pray to your God. But they said, this is just another joker like us. Get up and call upon whoever it is. Maybe one of these guys, maybe one of these deities will listen and have mercy on us. But he was dead inside. He never prayed and just kept running. And yet all of that changed when he came to the point of acknowledging God's lordship over his life and the point of owning his own sin. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. The Lord his God. Yahweh Elohim. Jonah recognized God is sovereign over my life. He owned his sin for which God had cast him into the, into the deep in verse three, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and flood and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Why, why is he saying this? He recognizes what he did that led him to that point. So today, if you're broken because of choices you've made, I want you to know that God desires to restore. God desires to heal those broken spaces of your life that the consequences of your sin have caused. In order for him to do that, though, you first have to stop running and to come home. you got to surrender afresh and anew to his lordship. You have to own your sin through confession and repentance. Here's what the enemy will tell you. Man, if you, if, if you get too serious about this confession stun, someone else is going to know about it, and, and you're, you're done. You're toast. Who cares what other people know or say about you when God is the one who is crashing down on your life you, you following that who you choose choose my words carefully here you got kids present who cares man that's the big one of the biggest lies the enemy wants you to know man if you begin to get too serious about this it, it's not going to be good for you it, it's not good for you now because you're under the judgment of god that's what Jonah's hap- what's happening to Jonah here. If he'd have begun to ration like that, he would have still been in the bottom of the ocean, and we wouldn't have this story. We'd just have Jonah at the bottom of the ocean as fish bait. But man, when we confess, things begin to happen. John again, 1 John 1, 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All of it. All unrighteousness, he says. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what John is telling us is what Jonah did. Own your sin. Trust Jesus with the consequences. Allow him to forgive you for it. Allow him to change your life. But if you want to keep holding on to it and think that you can manage it, it will manage you to the very bottom of your life. But if you'll be honest about it and upfront about it and open about it, God can change you. Confession and repentance necessitate a return to the Lord. But in our sin, here's what we want to do. We would prefer the Lord just graciously proclaim ongoing universal forgiveness. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful for the Lord to say, I love you enough, you're forgiven, no big deal. 
just wipe it clean. And every time God just wipes it clean, what happens in that? We want to wallow in sin and we just want to be, we just want it to be blotted out. No big deal. No big deal. No big deal. But God loves you so much. He knows that the sin that you're involved in is not good for you. It's like a cancer in your life. God wants to go in and cut it out of your life because he knows it's going to keep giving you problems. It's going to be devastating to your life and your relationships and everything in your life. So God will forgive, but he only forgives when we say, Lord Jesus, I need your help and I'm walking away from that sin. If we want to be raised to new life today, it begins with acknowledging his lordship over us and turning from that sin. There's a third thing I want you to see, and I'm going to do this in the next few minutes. Life is found exclusively in the God of the Bible. Look at verses 7 through 9. He says, when my life was fading, fainting away, I remember the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's a great statement. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Why would he make such a statement in this situation? Keep the context. The sailors had been praying to their gods to no avail. Right? He says that. The vain idols, helped not, they didn't help at all. They were vanity. It was a vain expression. It was a vain attempt. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So in other words, what, what he's saying here is that when we look to things that are outside of God, it is nothing but a vain attempt that wreaks nothing in our lives. Surely they did everything possible to arouse and to spur those gods into action. They needed help. They would have done anything to do that. I think of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18 when he's standing there in Mount Carmel and he's taunting the gods of Baal and the Asherah and what they're doing. They're chanting, they're dancing around, they're cutting themselves. And he's saying, hey, maybe your God's out to lunch. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's relieving himself in the bathroom. Bible's funny at times with some of that language. Got to laugh at it. And then he steps up there and he builds an altar and he cuts the ox and he puts the wood there and he douses it with water multiple times and he calls on the God of heaven and fire falls and it doesn't just burn up the sacrifice, it licks up the water, the Bible says. It boils it up into nothing. That's the God we serve. An exclusive God. Jonah here remembers the Lord and prays. He answered, the Lord answered and saved the prophet, but he didn't just do that. He, he, he saved the sailors as well. When I came to faith in Jesus a long time ago, God used one particular verse to do that. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12 says this. He who has the Son, S-O-N, has life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I was a I was a really religious person, freshman in college. I was probably one of the most religious people I knew at that time. Man, I, I read the Bible twice a day. I spent time in prayer. I was at church all the time. I'd been a leader in my student ministry in high school. I went to a Christian school. I mean, I knew the stuff. I did everything I could to be a Christian, to look like a Christian. The only problem was that I was not a Christian. I never trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'd never received forgiveness for my sin. I had just merely gone through religious motions. 
So I had no spiritual life because I didn't know the Son of God. And that verse God used to open my heart to that reality in my own life. It was April 24th, 1997. It was a Thursday. I'm one of those weird guys that remembers dates and situations. And I remember it so vividly, I can think of everything that happened that day. Those verses rocked me. Or that verse, those words in that verse rocked my life. God, I have no life. Am I living and breathing? Yeah. Am I doing work? Yeah. But man, I had no life whatsoever. I was undone, so to, so to speak, in the words of Isaiah and, and Jeremiah, who had such encounters with the Lord. Like the sailors in this story, I called upon the Lord, and he saved me. I found life in Jesus and in no other. That's what Jonah's saying here. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Life belongs to the Lord. You will find it nowhere else. This morning, as we look at this text, I want you to see that God is in the business of raising broken people out of the muck and the mire of life. He delights in doing just that. He does it in salvation. Today, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you never confessed your sins, you've never uh, asked him to, to forgive you and to change, if you've never uh, experienced what Ricky Groom, who was just baptized this morning, if you've never experienced that in your life, today's the day for that. Maybe you're watching online and you've never trusted Jesus. I know it's a holiday week and we got people who are away this morning. Man, if this is the day that you know you need to give your life to Jesus, here's a big question. What's hindering you? What's hindering you? Perhaps this morning, because most of us in here, I would say, are believers, maybe this morning you're just walking at a guilty distance. And your guiltiness, your distance from the Lord may be shorter than someone else's, or it may be longer. It doesn't matter how far it is, you feel the distance. You feel the tension. You feel the weight of the consequences of your sin. You, you feel all of that. Jonah would tell us, don't allow yourself to get so far that you feel like God's literally going to kill you. That's what I believe God was going to do. I think I said that last week. Jonah had not repented. He would be dead at the bottom of the ocean because that's where sin will take you. But he did, and God forgave you. And so this morning, whatever you feel this morning, whatever you feel in your life, whatever decisions you've made that have, that have ruined you, what's preventing you from looking to the Lord? What's preventing you from calling out? You say, well, it's because that I just feel the weight of my decisions. It's because it's so hard and it's not really genuine that I'm calling out to the Lord. Jonah was not calling out of affection from the Lord. He was calling out of affliction because he realized that if he didn't call on the Lord, he would die. So it doesn't matter the motive behind it. It's coming from a place of faith. Can God forgive and can God change your life? If you believe he can, what's preventing you from calling out to him? Trust him today to change your life. 